Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clash. The Coffee Clash and Special Needs Talk Radio Network feature outstanding programming for the special needs community. Our team of hosts provide educational interviews. Our shows are not designed to provide listeners with specific or personal medical, legal, or professional service or advice. Parents of children with health issues should always consult their health care provider for medical advice, medications, or treatment. Any show discussing rights and law for special needs children and special education are presented as general information and not legal advice. Special Needs Coffee Clash Limited does not promote any hosts or guests' individual practice, programs, treatments, or products. We thank you for joining us and are proud to provide excellence in broadcasting for the special needs community. And now, on to the interview. Good evening, this is Marianne Russo. I am so thrilled to bring you the continuation of our Maverick Mind series. I want to first um, thank our sponsor, Mayor Johnson. Uh, Mayor Johnson, the makers of Boardmaker, have recently released an e-catalog. Um, it features hundreds of great products, including several significantly reduced prices. And, um, you know, Mayor Johnson is your special resource, super, special education resource superstore. So uh, please go over there, take a look, and they really have a beautiful website. You can go to www.mayor-johnson.com to learn more. And as I said, I am very excited about today's show. Um, this is part four of a five-part series. And today, Angie Eaton and Dr. Sherry Florence are going to be discussing Five Steps to Brain Engineering. Angie, how are you? I'm fine. How are you, Marion? I'm great. This is just an unbelievable, really unbelievable series that you're doing. So tell us more about what you're going to be doing and introduce Dr. Florence. Okay, wonderful. Well, as you said, here we are again, um, continuing with our series on the Maverick Mind. And Marianne, I do want to thank you for all the great work that you do, bringing important information to the public. And, of course, I want to thank you again, Dr. Florence, for all the important work that you do and for being here with us um, again today. You're welcome, Angie. It's delightful <laughs> to be here with you. And you've got a great show organized for us. Great. Well, uh, in our last interview, um, if you all listened to it, we focused on how to correctly identify a maverick. And as a quick summary, a maverick is someone with high visual thinking abilities and low auditory abilities, or you could say genius visual thinkers with a language disorder. And I want to point out, first of all, that we refer to a language disorder and a communication disorder, and really we're talking about the same thing here. Dr. Florence explained the three criteria in our last show that she developed in order to identify the maverick, which were the presence of many visual thinkers in the family tree, 
the presence of at least half of 50 symptoms dealing with visuals, listening, speaking, reading, and writing, and whether the goals for treatment were focused on improving communication. But what was really key in that interview was recognizing that it can often be very complex to ferret out the source of maverick symptoms because they can look like many other commonly diagnosed psychiatric conditions. Unlike someone with a psychiatric disorder, however, Dr. Florence discovered that the root of behavior symptoms in highly visual mavericks is a language disorder, which is a result of their highly visual brains overpowering the verbal pathways in the brain. The very important distinction between a psychiatric condition and a communication disorder is that while psychiatric conditions are generally considered to be lifelong and the treatment plan typically includes medication and counseling, you can implement a group of teachable skills with a person with a communication disorder to resolve the symptoms. And those teachable skills is what we're going to be addressing today. Uh, Dr. Very, Florence, very well put, Angie. That was an excellent <laughs> explanation of a complicated topic. It really is. And that's why we're doing a whole series on Mavericks. Uh, let's see, Dr. Florence, because you discovered that the symptoms in a maverick really stem from this language disorder. I know that you incorporate international and national best practice standards for language disorders mm -hmm. when you're treating mavericks, which is what is recommended for anyone working with a maverick. Um, however, because of the reason for the language disorder in a maverick, that is that the highly visual brain overpowering the verbal brain, you've developed a treatment program based on those best practices that take this into account. Um, and you refer to this, or you've coined the term the, the brain engineering program. And we're going to discuss all the specific steps of your brain engineering program, but before we do that, can you describe in general, why is it important to teach language skills to mavericks in a different manner or sequence than you would teach them in a more traditional sense? Mm -hmm. Well, that's a very good point, Angie, because we start with training the visuals first. And that might seem counterintuitive because the visuals are already very high. Even in, in you know, first graders, we see them testing on adult tests in the superior levels. So why would we start training something that was gifted? Well, we do that because there's an antagonism between the visual and the verbal pathway. The visual is as much as 30,000 times faster. It's a completely different code of thinking. And those two systems can fight. And until we get that fighting to resolve, it's hard to teach language skills, if not impossible. And I would imagine if you went head-on with teaching verbal skills, um, you'd get a pretty negative reaction. What, what might you see? Well, usually we see, and when I meet a family, they've usually been working with excellent hometown teachers and therapists. And the teachers and therapists are saying, you know, the things that we're doing aren't working. We've hit a plateau. And these are the strategies we use with lots of other children, and we know how much progress to expect in a month or two months or six months. And, and the maverick child seems to be getting worse when all their other students seem to be getting better. So when we untangle that problem with the visual and the verbal fighting, 
then the hometown therapists have a chance to take advantage of all the growth that they've been working on, maybe sometimes over years, because the brain knows all of that and now it starts to pay off. So there's a key before the traditional best practices for language can really benefit the child because of this fighting between the visual and the verbal. Does that make sense, Angie? It does, and and that's your absolute specialty in what you do with brain engineering. Mm -hmm. So let's talk more specifically about your treatment approach in the brain engineering program. So there's a lot to talk about along the way, and I may stop you and ask you a few pointing questions, but why don't you go ahead and walk us through all the steps of your brain engineering program? Well, I'd be delighted to. And Angie, you made this outline for our our radio show today uh, based on some videos we have at www.sherryflorence.com. So each step I'm going to be talking about, there's a video and a handbook that we give for free to people that write in. So if you're interested in more information, we we provide that as long, in addition to the best practices that we'll be referring to for Perfect. anyone at no charge. So we start out with step one, which is the brain pillars of visual attention and visual memory. And we the, within the first week for the right child, we expect to see that antagonism starting to go away, to resolve. And then we start to train the visual brain so that it can hold about 500 data bytes in working memory. And then we start to move that working memory over to the verbal pathway because auditory sequential memory is the heart of all language. So we have four workbooks in that step, two on visual, two on verbal, We have verbal attention and visual attention and verbal memory and visual memory, and we balance those so they work together. We don't want to take down the visual, but we want them to work in harmony in their own specific processing ways. And then we have good speed of forward-moving processing is what we need for talking, reading, writing, and speaking. The second step is to improve the central executive. So if some of the parents listening have had reports from psychologists or school psychologists, you might have seen that there's an executive function problem in your child. That's because there's an imbalance between how the brain is working in different skills. So on the Wexler Intelligence scale for children, which is a very commonly used test in the schools and in psychology offices, if we see more than 10 points spread between the highest and the lowest score, we start worrying about the central executive. For Mavericks, there's generally a 90 to 100 point spread. And for the average person, there's not more than 10 points. So you can see the central executive is very different in Mavericks than most people. Most people would get between 90 and 110 IQ. That would be about 80% of the human race. Mavericks have a 190 IQ and maybe a, uh, a 70 IQ. So 
they have a huge spread. And that throws off the central executive, and then that can uh, make a maverick easy to engage in fight or flight. The central executive, according to David Kaplan at Harvard, is a fuel pump. And when that fuel pump is drained, mavericks can be very fragile. There's several ways to recharge central executive fuel that have been researched. One is exercise, Dr. Cantwell, Dennis Cantwell, a very famous child psychiatrist, studied the impact of exercise. Sleep is well established as a way to refresh the brain. And then in Mavericks, we create what we call brain refreshers, and we do visual activities like computer games, hidden pictures, uh, puzzles, uh, things like that that we organize so that they are designed to refresh the brain, and that helps the child stay in verbal land longer. So, Angie, I'm doing all the talking here. Uh, Did you want to add anything at this point? (laughs) Oh, sure. I have lots to add. But, um, you know, I want to talk about that draining of the central executive and what that looks like. Dealing with school children, they come home from their day in verbal land at school, and they're completely drained. Often what you hear uh, given as advice is, you know, get your child to do their homework right away when they come home from school before you do Mm -hmm. anything else. Yeah. And that's probably the worst thing you could do for a maverick. And you're not going to get much cooperation because they don't have any fuel left in their tank. And so one of the great pieces of advice that you gave me for my daughter was, as soon as she comes home from school, let her get right on the computer. Let her play games. Don't talk to her very much. Don't engage her in a lot of um, communication. Nowadays, kids have iPads, and that's been the greatest uh, tool to recharge that central executive, wouldn't you say? I would. And they're so portable. You can have them in the car. It's wonderful. Mm -hmm. Well, I was just going to say, yeah, I was going to say that you may notice if you think you have a maverick, if, you know, ask yourself if they've been in verbal land for a long time. That could be school. It could be with their friends talking a lot. Any situation in which they have to communicate a lot or listen a lot, notice that after those times, if you ask a lot of them, are they more fragile? Are they more irritable? Um, if that's the case, just experiment and try with, um, with, or you know, letting them withdraw a little bit and do something that they enjoy visually. Maybe it's drawing or getting on the iPad or maybe even just vegging out to TV if that works for them and see if that helps because that's really an important tool that you can incorporate every day. So I, I just think that's a very practical tip for our Maverick parents. Well, that's um, so I do important. Let's just add a couple things to what you said, Angie, because you you stated that brilliantly. There's a, a suggestions for parents that has been produced by the Cleveland Clinic, a famous medical clinic in Cleveland, Ohio, and they and in that recommendation list, one of them is 
No child with a language processing problem should ever have homework. If you can't get it done at school, don't take it home. That seems really aggressive, doesn't it? And the second thing on that handout is never keep a child in from recess because they were struggling during the school day. Because they are telling us at the Cleveland Clinic that getting outside and refreshing the brain is going to help you pay attention for the rest of the day. So if you take that away and you keep doing more and more work you're struggling on, you can easily get into fight or flight for the rest of the day. So everything you said about giving the children time to do do some visual activities or exercise uh, is going to give you a much better chance of learning from doing your homework. I am, I'm sure that many parents have had that experience where they force the homework on their child, but uh, it doesn't seem to really do any good. They don't make any progress, or maybe the child is still struggling in school. But it is amazing. It's very counterintuitive. If you yeah. ease up on that, you get better results. Right, and one thing you can do in conjunction with your classroom teacher is say, uh, can you give me 15 minutes of the most important things you'd like me to work on at home tonight? So that, And then 20 minutes, and then 30 minutes, so that the time spent at home is not a big fight and a struggle. It's real learning. You know, that also reminds me of the point you make about a failure-free environment. And you talk about um, studies that show that the the optimum level of success or failure, depending on how you look at it, is about 80% success. Mm-hmm. And I would like you to talk uh, to our listeners about that a little bit in this context. Well, if you think about coaches, Coaches tend to work on that principle a lot. So if you were teaching tennis, the tennis coach would uh, would anticipate your level of ability, your competency zone, and hit the ball so you could hit it back. And then as you improved, they'd hit harder balls or they'd hit balls far away from you so that you'd have to run to hit the ball. You'd have to use your perceptual reasoning to figure out how to hit the tennis ball. And they gradually increase the tennis game uh, as your competency improves. So you're always, in tennis, at least 80% success, or you wouldn't return to take another lesson. That's elective. But in school, we have an idea that some people should get an A, and some people should get an F, and some people should get a C, and then we're doing effective teaching, when really... If you think about something like medical school and we were teaching surgery, if some of the people, some of the doctors got F, the people, the patients would be dead. So in medical school, everything is 80% correct or better because the attending physician will take over where the the doctor that's learning is, is beginning to fail. In swimming, teaching swimming, that's what we do. We don't let the children drown in the swimming pool. So some of them are drowning, they're getting the F, and some of them are swimming, they're getting the A. Many examples of teaching within the competency zone in everyday life. 
And that's when we go to an IEP meeting, for example, we want to make sure that the accommodations lead to getting a B or better. Right. And um, first of all, for the Mavericks, it's the, the problem is, first of all, identifying that the issue is a language disorder. So until you do that, probably not going to be having a lot of this or be able to have this mindset to be able to implement these concepts, right? Mm -hmm. So it sort of all goes back to knowing what you're dealing with, that you're dealing with a language or communication issue. And, you know, that speaks to what is so powerful about the work that you do with parents because once you get the message through that the child is not a behavior issue or maybe a learning disability issue, but really you're dealing with a communication issue, then the, the, all the communication at home changes because you're now aware that this is the real issue. And I know you always told us that, you know, a communica communication disorder is so difficult because it's invisible. Mm-hmm. And uh, I myself still forget that often because you, you know, if I'm dealing with some misbehavior, I it just looks purposeful often. Yeah. But I have to keep reminding myself that maybe there's miscommunication going on or frustration because of miscommunication. All right. And the tricky part of that, Angie, is that the frustration of misunderstanding something that leads mm -hmm. to the misbehavior could have been two days ago. So you could have a, an embarrassing moment at school where you misunderstood what the teacher said and and you got in trouble or you got the answers wrong, and and you can have a delayed reaction to that that situation. You can be feeling bad about it for a couple days and then all of a sudden have a meltdown. You know, on Friday when the real incident occurred on Tuesday. So it's very complicated, but there's a wonderful guide that you can get at Amazon or at Sam Goldstein's website. It's called The Parent Guide Language and Behavior Problems in Children by Sam Goldstein, PhD, a psychologist, and Paige Hinderman, who's a speech pathologist. And they it explains how to separate a misbehavior from a language problem and what to do about it. So it's a really useful guide. And the other thing I'd recommend getting from Amazon is a book called Psychiatric Developmental Disorders in Children with Communication Disorder by Cantwell and Baker. And for parents that want to understand what you've been saying, Angie, several times today, we want to identify the language problem as the primary problem, if at all possible, because it's the most treatable. And Dr. Cantwell would say, take, break off the most treatable part of the problem that you see and then be very aggressive about correcting it. And if that happens, the behavior problem should go away in the right child. And this all speaks to what I told Marianne initially when we started the series is that for me, this is such a paradigm shift. 
parents are so used to hearing all about, uh, you know, oppositional disorders or autism or Asperger's or ADD, and so much is fed to us about this, um, mm-hmm. you know, that we that we forget about, um, uh, the, you know, the possibility of these uh, language disorders. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and it's just a, a totally different approach. Right. You know what? Let's let's. So there's, like I said, there's so much to talk about. We do kind of get off track, although it's all uh, pertinent and important. But we were going to focus on the steps of the brain engineering today. And so right. far, you've talked. We, there's five steps. So far, we talked about step one, which is training visual and auditory or verbal attention and memory. And just to back up. To that for one second. Can you talk about the zoom lens discriminator and scanner, what that is in regard to attention? Well, there are three components to human attention. One is our ability to zoom in. So when we're reading, our brain zooms in to the main semantic words, the big meaningful words, like the people, the actions, the objects. Those if you were writing a telegram and every word was a, cost you $1,000, then you'd write in like a shorthand with pulling out just the main words. Our brain does that automatically. That's our verbal zoom lens for verbal people. For visual people, that can seem like just a big sea of words and it's hard to understand what you're reading. The discriminator is our ability to compare and contrast, and the scanner is like if you took your video camera and you scanned around the house to make a virtual tour for the real estate agent. You're scanning. You're scanning when you read to find a certain answer to a question. So some people think that attention means try harder. And we've had even college students tell me that, you know, that they are, you know, they try as hard as they can, but they're not able to do these skills of Zoom lens, discriminator, and scanner. Or teachers will say, in a, for a fifth grader, I'll go tap the desk, and that means you should pay attention more. So I just keep my finger on your desk until you pay attention more. And that would be like saying, I'm going to keep my finger on your desk until you're 10 feet tall. It's a biologic function. And the reason we're belaboring step one and two today is that steps three, four, and five, Angie, are about daily living skills, input processors of listening and reading, output processors of speaking and writing. And depending on the therapist and the faculty involved, often I help consult with the first two steps and get get the maverick ready to learn reading, writing, listening, and speaking with assistance from the hometown professionals. And step five is stable transfer to home, school, and self. And by step five, we definitely need input from hometown specialists and parents and extended family to make sure that all the skills are stable on the verbal pathway and we have a symptom-free child. So that's covering those five steps in a nutshell. Right. And 
why don't you give us a couple of of examples of techniques uh, or how you teach some of these skills? So how, maybe just, you know, one or two examples of how do you teach the zoom lens discriminator and scanner in visual attention and auditory attention, and how do you work with memory? Okay. So if you go to the website www.highlightskids.com and you select hidden pictures, you'll see that on that website there's a hint button and when you click the hint to find an item in the hidden picture, a little telescope uh, arises and zooms you in on the area where the, the heart might be hiding. So you're looking for a heart, you're looking for a guitar, you hit the hint button, a little telescope goes right around where you'd find that guitar, and it activates your brain's zoom lens. So try that, and you'll understand more about scanning, discriminating, and scanner on the visual pathway. On the auditory pathway, if you take some songs and you hear the song, then you replay the song, and you fill in the blank. For You stop and start the song and fill in the blank. Then you are zooming in on the word that's missing in the blank. If you're decoding what you're listening to when you're hearing the song in the background noise, you're comparing and contrasting the different sounds with other noises and pulling the sounds out. So... We use things like hidden pictures and music with songs, lyrics, and the music in the background to work on visual and auditory attention and then memory. Does that help, Angie? It does. And then in regard to step two, improving the central executive, what types of activities do you typically employ there? Well, we want to think about the central executive as a fuel pump. And David Kaplan is a an MD, PhD in neurology at Harvard, and he says that we allocate fuel every time we read, write, listen, speak, think. And that fuel is used up, and then we go to sleep at night and replenish the fuel, and we have our on the next day full of fuel. So... The central executive has three fuel pathways. We either send fuel to the associator, which is visual, or the sequencer, which is verbal, or the channel switcher, which moves back and forth. When my son Whitney was little, all his brain fuel was going to the associator. He was making Legos, doing puzzles, playing computer games, but we could scream in his ear at times and he couldn't hear anything. No fuel went to the verbal pathway. It all went to the visual. And that's the central executive. Its job is to prioritize, plan, organize, allocate fuel. So you group activities dealing with associations, and then you do other activities that deal with sequencing. And... In addition to that, we talked about this before in a prior interview, but throughout all of your training, you have designed this technique where when a child gets an answer correct, the the therapist or the parent takes a penny and pings it in a jar. And mm-hmm. what that does is 
opens that auditory pathway, first of all. Mm-hmm. But it's also establishing this ratio because every three pennies, then the child receives um, some other sort of treat, sometimes maybe a goldfish or something. And then when the whole activity is done, then there's some variable activity that's unexpected every time. Mm-hmm. And we talked about that as a technique that you use to um, disguise the sequencer, to teach the sequencer, but in a visual-friendly way. In other words, you're not going right at a maverick with teaching sequencing. Right. And I think what's really interesting about that is, I know from my own experience with my daughter, when we first started, I had the goldfish there, our very first activity, and she would try and grab them out of order. You know, I'd put one penny and then she'd go, oh, I'm going to get two goldfish. Mm-hmm. And it was so obvious that she didn't understand the sequence. And yeah. as we progressed, then she understood it very clearly. I thought that's very interesting. I tried an exercise once with my kids. We were going down the highway, and I thought, you know, they have a mile marker. Uh-huh. When you're going down the highway, every mile they have a, a number. Yeah. And so I thought, let's try and teach a sequencer. Let's see how it is here. So I said, kids, look at the mile markers count them and on every third mile marker um, you say something you know say that's the third one and then start over it was so interesting because my son who is not as maverick I guess you could say as my daughter he Uh had no problem with that but my daughter lost attention right away and she couldn't really keep up with it I thought it was a really good illustration of that well your daughter Angie is such a creative old soul, isn't she? Mm-hmm. And she thinks in associations big time. She has characters that she invents. She has all kinds of creativity that works through that associator that's, you know, just a treasure chest of intellectual wealth. Mm-hmm. But it's different than following directions and sequencing all day long at school. Right. I mean, internally, probably within those three miles, she was doing a lot of imagination and intellectual work, but just in a different way. Right, in a much more powerful way. And the sequencer then gets, you know, kind of obliterated. Right. Right. All right. So, let's see. We've you You mentioned input processors which is reading and listening. That's step three of your training. Right. And, um, you know, like you said, those are the layers on top of the very important work of, of training the brain pillars and the central executive. Mm-hmm. But when you're, I wanted to ask you, when you're teaching reading, uh, you know, a lot of people talk about dyslexia, and I often wonder, do mavericks have dyslexia or is dyslexia somehow related Um, I know my daughter says, talking about that imagination, when she reads, her B's and D's and M's and W's juggle that dot on top of the I. Uh (laughs) And I I said, okay. You know, her A turns into a spider and crawls up the page. And she says, Mom, I think I have dyslexia. And I said, "Ah, I just think you might have a huge imagination. But maybe could you speak about dyslexia? Um, Is it related at all? Or how do you deal with teaching reading? 
Well, you know, my my training was my postdoctoral training was through the National Institutes of Health, and the National Institutes of Health definition of dyslexia is an imbalance between the auditory and visual thinking systems. So by that, which is what you have in Mavericks, right? Everybody that's a Maverick would have de- dyslexia according to that definition. But they won't test as dyslexia. It's dyslexic well, often. Well, if you test it according to standards from the NIH, they will. Hmm. But let's say you take a medical student and they take a 10th grade reading test because that's about as high as most of our reading tests go. A medical student is going to get all the answers right on the reading test. So as you just said, Angie, they won't test as dyslexic. They won't look like they have a reading problem at all. But on the symptoms, the symptoms of a maverick reading problem, which is reading processing, understanding what you read as you go along, pulling out the relevant from irrelevant, they check off all ten. So if you ask the the medical student... Here's the definition of dyslexia. Here are the symptoms you're experiencing. Do you have dyslexia? They'll all say yes, even though they got 100% on the reading test. So it's a reading processing problem that's neurologically based. That's what dyslexia is. And it doesn't mean we have to put the letters backwards or, you know, have mirror writing or something like that where we're writing the letters like we're looking at the mirror. It doesn't the those are some symptoms. They're often on in T V shows about children with reading problems that are in a drama or something, but the real definition from the NIH, which is a, a pretty big authority, is an imbalance between the auditory and visual pathways that presents as problems in reading comprehension. And interestingly enough, when we think about the medical students, many of them were very early readers and were good readers up to the fourth grade. When you have to read out loud or you have to take notes while listening where you have to double the language processors and then things start to fall apart in a way and they go for the big picture. They're still getting an A, but they're not really reading complicated, isn't it? <laughs> That's why we're doing the series. <laughs> so when you said they don't test as dyslexic, you were right. But if you ask them, how's your reading, they'll say terrible. That's what I get. Uh-huh. Because there's not reading tests that are hard enough to flush this out. However, there are auditory processing tests that are you know, on an auditory selective attention, which is the attention zoom lens, The medical students I work with miss about 80 to 90 items out of 110. The average person would miss about 20. So there are many ways to figure this out, but not with a normal reading test. Hmm. Okay. Well, thank you for explaining that. That's always been a curiosity of mine. The other thing that you might want to think about with Meredith and and probably with many of the listeners is some children, especially Mavericks, can read things that they like much better than read things at school. Like they might make mistakes reading directions on on a test 
but they can go home and read Nancy Drew because Nancy Drew is like a template. It's not new vocabulary or new plot development. It's, you know, you're reading, but you can picture it easily, like Harry Potter. You can picture it. It's been made into a movie. It might be much more uh, much more easy to much easier to read than say reading directions on a test where you could make a little mistake and miss the question. Mhm. I definitely find that to be true. Uh-huh. Sometimes I find that to be true with just work around the house. <laughs> I don't know if that's a just a kid thing, but I'll tell you what if if my child doesn't like to do something, it's it's almost impossible to get her to do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, she may have a picture in her mind of what she thinks she's going to be doing. I'm sure she does, because I know Meredith. She can forecast a picture of what she thinks she will be doing, you will be doing, and then when you change the picture, she's going to her art studio to make 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 art and she's got a picture of that she's got a whole movie of that and then you say but we're taking the garbage out she has to change her picture and that can be a big hiccup for for a maverick and it looks like not cooperating boy that's the truth I have spoken with some other people I know well okay it's my husband (laughs) I'm trying to disguise him but Uh he says that that (laughs) When he has a, a plan in his mind, he has that you know vision of what's going to happen, and it doesn't happen, that he, he takes himself back to sort of a central room in a house. Let's say you had a big mansion. You would come back to the foyer and have to start over. Yeah. Or I've even heard, like, um, you know, Temple Grandin in her movie, she talks about when she has a new challenge, walking through a door, and she pictures a door and walks through it. Uh-huh. I think those are interesting techniques. They they really have to visualize almost everything. All of their thinking is is very, very visual, isn't it? Well, you might take out the word have to because it may be the way they think. They don't have to do it. There's nothing else they could do. For example, my my boss at the Ohio State Medical School said that, you know, if he was going to drive his car, he'd see uh, a little image of himself walking to the car before he walked to the car, then putting the key in, then turning the key, then driving down the street. There was always a little like hologram in front of his mind for getting a cup of coffee, for pouring the coffee in the cup. And, And I don't do that. So he'd say, well, how do you know how to drive a car then? He couldn't imagine that I could drive the car if I didn't see that little image of myself driving it. So it's it's just the status quo. It's it's the problem is when you're when you're not a maverick or you're um you know, you're sort of the, the, the norm where you use both things, it's just hard to mesh with that unless you truly understand it. And I still yeah. struggle with it. <laughs> Yeah, it's so, like for him, he thought, how in the world would I know how to get the car to the parking garage? And he's, you know, he's passed away now, but he would be on this call insisting that there's no way I could drive the car without that image. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's all good. It leads to very productive work in these Mavericks. They can do wonderful things with that mind, can't they? 
They sure can. All right. Well, I think we're going to have to wrap it up. I have many more questions maybe we can save for next time, but I'm going to wrap it up. And once again, thank you for all the wonderful discussions. Appreciate you being here again. And next time, we're going to be kind of tackling things on the latter end. What does a maverick look like when they're symptom-free? What are the success stories? And we'll probably throw in all of the questions that we didn't get a chance to uh, get to in these interviews. So, Dr. Florence, thank you so much. Well, thank you, Angie. It's been a delight to be with you again. Okay. We'll see you next time. Okay. Bye. (laughs) Bye Bye-bye.